I, I need to confess something to you guys just right up front. Um, there is a sense of inadequacy that I have right now in being able to preach this message and share these truths with you. And I think it's because God is wanting me personally to walk in these truths and experience it in a more dynamic way. And I wouldn't put it past God to show you that maybe you need to as well this morning. I believe God wants to show us something about what it is to experience him in his grace in such a deeper, realistic, uh, rubber-meeting-the-road way. And I believe that God is bringing us as a church to do that. And, and you know what, church? I, I'm not just talking about sipping I'm not just talking about tasting. I'm talking about diving in. I'm talking about experiencing the full breadth of who God is in an everyday realistic way. Okay? So can you hear that? Okay. All right. I realize we're smaller in number um, this morning, it, sicknesses, etc. But I believe that God has some truths for us that if we allow the Spirit to speak us, we will truly reflect on how profound God's truth really is. And for us to experience this truth, you know, I don't want you to just know the truth in an intellectual way. I want you to know it because I want you to experience the truth. Amen? That's why we have this. We are called to experience God's truth, to live it, to walk it out. I can remember years and years ago, Meredith and I, were, we had, uh, well, I'm trying to remember just how many children we had at the time. Too. Uh, we had three children. There we go. Uh, Jim and Shine weren't born until later. And we were praying and fasting, and God was opening doors for ministry in the church we were in. And God did something very profound in us as we set a day aside for fasting and praying and just saying, okay, God, we're seeking you. What do you want us to do next month? They're planning on taking me on part-time, eventually full-time with the church we were at. They had been looking forward to doing this, waiting for finances to come in the last two years. So this was culminating after two years. And you can only imagine the sense of expectation on merits on my part. And God spoke to us that day and he said, I want you to plant a church. And I, I, I struggled with this because my plan, okay, was I wanted to pastor full-time two years, and then God, you call us then. And God did not do that. And so I can remember that we were in this waiting pattern, and I've shared this story with you before, so I'm just going to cut to the chase but we were in this waiting pattern for several months as we were praying and fasting and planning and just laying it all before God. And he was saying, move. And God spoke through Kate when she was a little girl. And she said, Daddy, I feel like we're like Abraham, that God is calling us to a place that we don't know yet. And I said, man, I have no clue where this place is. I really don't. And yet the church prayed over us and sent us out with a whole thousand dollars to be able to do this. And uh, we were just saying, God, we really don't know what you're calling us to do. And I really feel a whole lot more comfortable just staying in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where we were, where, we'd be, where we had been for six years and feeling comfortable and ministering comfortably. And God said no, and he kicked us out of the nest, so to speak. And we were looking at... Uh, Raleigh Durham, we were looking at Greensboro, Charlotte, you know, God's country, so they say. Uh, we were looking at possibility of Atlanta, and we were just, it's like, God, I'm a planner, and I don't have a plan, and I feel so uncomfortable. What are you doing with me? And I truly did not know. And so on the way down, this is how it came about, church. On the way down, we were going to Meredith's parents, and we were just going to pit stop there for a month and just seek God. And as we were driving through Orlando, Meredith spoke to me and she said, could we consider Orlando? Because that was not on my radar at all. When, my, when I was engaged to my wife and I'd spent some time in Southport, she was from Pembroke Pines, Florida. She promised me and I promised her we will never live in Florida. It is, this is August, okay? Summertime, 95 degrees and it feels like 195 degrees with the humidity, <laughs> all right? And we're just cooking out, and, and, and I walk out there, and Mer Meredith is, is kind of laying out in the sun and catching some rays, and I'm just thinking, how can you do that? It is so hot and humid. I'm out here five minutes, I'm sweating, and I want to go back in. 
So we promise we are never going to live in Florida. Yeah. So God kind of chuckled, I'm sure, as we agreed on this before we got married. And God called us to Florida. God called us to Central Florida. God called us to the humidity capital of the world. Thank you, Lord. And I believe that he called us down here because he wanted us, in his sovereign grace, to touch some people's lives, like you, Mary Smith, so that you would be able to touch many people's lives. We had a connection with the Nolets uh, before we actually came down here because they lived in Virginia Beach, Virginia, just a few miles from us, went to the same church. And they came down here, and we've had an opportunity to touch some of their lives because we believe, Nolets, that you were going to touch many lives. And we could just go around and around. And Sarah came to our church. She was a, a single young lady, and she had she didn't just toe dip in the world. She had been in the world, and God snatched her out of that fire and rescued her, transformed her life. And this young guy by the name of Mike Jeffords fell for her. And I mean, he fell on his face for her, like many times fell for her on his face. And I could say he embarrassed himself, but that might be embarrassing. And so it took a couple of years for God to work in Mike Jeffords' life and kind of clean him up and take the squirrely kid and really make him into an attractive young man. And I don't say that as a guy, but I say that as a, as a man of God, looking at another young man of God who is truly becoming attractive in the Lord. Uh, Jared, Sarah, however, she saw it from a little differently. She really did fall for this guy, but not on her face. And she just, she came to me and said, wow, who, tell me a little bit about Mike now. And she had known him for what, three, four years already, and Mike had just chased her off. He was like, no interest. And God just changed her heart because God changed Mike. And so I had the privilege of being a part of what God was doing and, and seeing a young man change because, Mike, I believe that God is going to use you to touch many people's lives, many people's lives. Do you hear me, church? This, this is where we are at, but we came down here with like nothing. Okay, $1,000, a little bit in savings, maybe a little bit. And it, we felt like Abraham, we felt like, God, where are you leading us? I'm like a guy, I, I love a plan. I don't do anything without a plan, and I don't have a plan. You are undoing me, God. What is up with this? Now, I'm sharing this with you because God, in his sovereignty and in his providence and his mighty hand, led us here. And this Orlando was not on our radar whatsoever. It wasn't even a place name came out of our lips until we drove through here. You know, it is so easy for us to have a plan. And God get, just kind of chuckles and said, okay, you, you kind of just think about your plan and put it on paper. Yeah, don't forget that. And, and you check the finances. That's good. Check the finances and do these things and cross your T's, dot your I's, and pray about this. But man, I've got a different plan for you. But I've got to bring you here to bring you here. And so God, like he so many times undoes our plan. Mike had uh, the, the church's life group led this past Wednesday night. And uh, Ron, what's his name? Ronnie Brown. So that's right. I've been told he doesn't look like a Ron. He looks like a Ronnie. Okay, Ronnie Brown. Uh, excellent storyteller. And he told us these two stories, one of which they wanted, this church wanted to build, a, purchase some land. And the owner said, absolutely not. Uh, maybe he was an, the exact opposite of a Christian. They ended up building their church, but during a flood, God, by his providential hand, uplifted that building and transplanted it down the road, sharp turn to the right, further down, and it landed on the very property that they had originally requested. Not a made-up story. The name of the gentleman that was the next scenario, what was his name? John Craig. Go figure that in the darkest moment of his life, he has nothing, and a black dog comes up to him with a leather pouch filled with what? Gold coins. Come on now. Really? Because God has a plan. And in the midst of this gentleman's original plan to just preach the gospel, he had been, rec he had been uh, 
recklessly loved, but he had been wrecked and undone and brought to salvation in Christ. And he's proclaiming the gospel. And he had, he had ended up in prison in Rome and he was ready to die. And God stepped in hours before his execution and totally overthrew the emperor or the, uh, the Pope's plans. Totally undid them. And he flees, finds himself by a stream, completely exhausted, no money, no help. And then God, like he did with Elijah, sends him a dog, except it was ravens for Elijah, with gold coins, and provides for him. That is God's mighty hand, guiding providentially. You know the story of Diego and Rose looking for a house the very house that they fell in love with, they got outbid by. And God just closed the door, and they stepped back, and honestly, they were discouraged. This is, this is wearying God. And, and even entertaining the question, God, are you even in this? Are we even in your will? What is, we don't understand. And then God had to bring them to this place of resting in his plan that was upending their plan. And when that happened, God opened a door, there were many who bid on that house, but as we learned, the owner did not look at any other bids but theirs, and they got the house. An absolutely beautiful home that they're going to be closing on in, what, two weeks or something? We're going to look at a story right now as you turn to Acts chapter 8, in which the, the early church had a plan, and their goal was nothing short of seeing the entire Roman world and beyond receive the gospel, be transformed, and if you will, the world Christianized. Their goal was lofty. It was huge. It was starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and then to the what? The ends of the earth. And that was their plan, and they were praying for this. And, and things were going along great, but then suddenly, we learned last week, Stephen got martyred. An amazing man of God. And he gets stoned to death by the Sanhedrin the Jewish ruling council of 70-some elders, he gets, he gets killed, he gets stoned. And it says right there in chapter 8, let me pull my glasses out, verse 1, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now, I want to ask you, Dad, specifically, what would you do in this situation? Now, some would say, generally those who are single, I might say, add, but, wow, I would have stayed there and I would have just stuck it out and and you probably would have died, and, you know, God's providential hand may have protected you, but you know what? Men, thinking of their families, they're saying, okay, God, we need to move on. Paul, chapter Acts 14, when persecution arises in Pisidian Antioch, he says he fleed into the next province. He fled. Not out of fear, but just understanding, I think God is moving us on. Because if we stay, we're going to die. And this is what happened with the early church. Now, I want you to realize something here. That even though the church has been praying, people have been coming to Christ. Church, thousands. What an amazing harvest has come. Thousands have been coming to Christ. They finally get on God's schedule with the Grecian widows. Then they start ministering to him. And even priests, Jewish priests, start coming to, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so God is moving amazingly, and then suddenly this happens. And it's like, whoa, whoa what, what is going on? The wide open doors for ministry, and now we've got to flee for our lives? And it says in verse 4, those who had been scattered, preached the word wherever they went. Now, Luke kind of takes us on a little bit of a detour to fill in some details with regard to Saul's life. First, Philip and how he went to Samaria. And then chapter 9, Saul's conversion, his name then becomes Paul. He becomes the apostle Paul. 
Then in chapter 10, we read about Gentiles, specifically Cornelius, a Roman centurion's household coming to Christ, and relatives and friends who had gathered there to hear the gospel. And then chapter 11, Luke goes back to where I left off there in chapter 8, verse 4, and he says this. Follow me now in Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, which is a big island right off the coast of the Mediterranean where they were, and Antioch, which is a couple hundred miles north in Syria, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in northern Africa, very far away. So Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch, and they began to speak to Greeks also, that is Gentiles, telling them the good news, the gospel about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. I want you to underline that phrase, the Lord's hand, because we're going to come back to that. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. And I want you to underline that phrase. Some of your versions just simply say that he saw the grace of God. That's a more literal translation. Underline that phrase, saw the grace of God or the evidence of the grace of God. We're going to come back to that. He was glad when he saw this. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true. And underline that phrase, remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. I'm going to suggest to us that in this series of Life in the Spirit, which I'm wrapping up today, that many times we are led by God's Spirit and we don't even realize it. God closes a door, and it's not that these disciples were led by fear. They were more led by necessity. And as a dad, I understand that. I understand when my family is being threatened, I do what I can to protect them. And I am sure many dads uprooted their families and said, guys, we've got to move on. But dad, we've been living in Jerusalem for 30. I know, we're moving on. Are we fleeing out of fear, dad? No, we are fleeing because this is where God is leading us, we pray. And God led them. You know how I know that? It doesn't tell me. It doesn't say, and led by the Spirit, much as Jesus was led by the Spirit in the desert. It doesn't say, and, and so they scattered because they were led by the Lord. <clears throat> it, it does tell us that the apostles actually remained in Jerusalem. The most godly of them chose to stay in Jerusalem. May I also add, however, in the very next chapter, James, the brother of John, one of Jesus' closest three disciples lost his life. He was beheaded. A young man. Not much opportunity to do the apostolic work that God had called him to. God allowed the enemy to take his life. There was risk involved. I believe that those who stayed in Jerusalem were led by the Lord and those who left Jerusalem were led by the Lord. They may not have understood this. They may not have seen this, but here's how I know that they, they were. And that is because in verse 21, it says the Lord's hand was with them. In going, they made disciples. Now, let me just repeat that. In going, they made disciples. Does that ring a bell anywhere from Scripture? In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it says, in going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I have commanded you. And though I will be with you, 
I'm going to be with you when you flee Jerusalem. I will be with you to the ends of the earth. I'm going to suggest to you that when out of necessity we move forward and God closes doors and opens doors, much as he did with my family in Virginia Beach, we are being led by the Spirit of God. And I want to tell you this, that when we were led by the Spirit of God and we are filled with faith, even as Abraham leaving his familiar family and culture and background was led to Canaan, filled with faith. God does, and his heart is always to do amazing things on your behalf. The Lord's hand was upon them. It also says, and a great number of people believe. So here's what I'm going to do. I want us to look at this phrase, the Lord's hand was with them. Because I think that many of you have a plan that God is upending that plan and he is moving you around. It may be with your job, it may be with ministry, it may be with family, it may be with a number of things. And God is going to move you into a new season in which there is multiplication because the passion in your heart is to do the Lord's will. It is in going, make disciples. And if that beats in your heart, I'm going to suggest to you that God's hand is going to be upon you. And the more you that God pulls out of that dream of yours, this new dream, the more you will allow God to work in your life. However, the more you that's in it, the less he can. And he's, he is not a gracious God. He's not going to say, excuse me. He's going to say, you know what, Mike? You need to just get out of the way. This is all about you. And it has to be all about him. And if it's not all about him... It will fail always, church. But here, it is all about God. And as they go, they can't help but telling people about Jesus. I just love that story. Don Francisco did it a while ago, and I've mentioned it to you. Some of you are thinking, who is Don Francisco? How many of you, by the way, how many of you remember Don Francisco? Not from a past sermon or anything, but you've actually listened to his songs. He, he sings ballads. He sings, sings stories. And at the very end, he sings the, the chorus that he sings. It's like overwhelming. It's powerful. They're amazing. Um, and in this one, he is talking about Jairus' daughter and how God raised her, Jesus raised her to life. And then it concludes with this, that he tells them, but don't tell anybody. And what did they do? They had to tell somebody. I've got to tell somebody what Jesus has done. And so Don Francisco's song, got to tell somebody, got to tell somebody what Jesus did for me. And, and it's just this resounding chorus that they, they just, there was nothing that I got to tell somebody. And, and if that beats in your heart, God's spirit is going to end up leading you. God is going to do amazing things. And so here they are in the, as they're fleeing it's, it concludes with, and the Lord's hand was with them. I want us to look at this. It is actually something that Luke uses several times. It's an Old Testament expression that we're going to look at in a moment. But Luke uses it two times, the word hand, just the word hand, and it's used in many different ways. Paul waves his hand to get people's attention. The apostles laid hands on people, and they were filled with the Spirit. They were healed. Used in many different ways, many contexts. But Luke uses this word hand, care, two times more than any other book in the New Testament. The book that uses it the second most is Luke's gospel. He talks about, Luke 166, he talks about the hand of the Lord. And I think as we go back, we are going to see something very profound about the hand of the Lord. I, I thought it rather humorous. God had already spoken to me like two weeks ago. I just started on this study of the hand of the Lord. I saw it when, I'll show a scripture passage with you as I was going through Acts. And I, the hand, of, I wonder where does this come from? And I started studying it. And then the very next week, the Lord showed me, because as I was going through this passage, just saying, okay, God, how do you want us to wrap up this series? God hadn't made it clear to me. And I came across this very phrase in the passage 
in Luke 11, excuse me, Acts 11 here, and God said, this is what I want you to preach on. Just camp out right here. And then Mike, in his story, the guy gets constantly referred to the hand of the Lord. And of course, Mike didn't know what I was preaching on. And I suggest to you that this phrase, the hand of the Lord, the, the Lord's hand, is so evident. And you know where it's the most evident? It's in the story of the Exodus. Do you remember when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he just cast out this demon from a man who was deaf and mute and he can now speak and hear? And they say, well, he did this by the power of Beelzebub. And, and, and Jesus kind of chuckles and says, yeah, right. Like the devil cast out the devil. Sure, do you, not, do you not follow your own logic? And he's kind of teasing them a little bit here. Kingdom divided against kingdom. City against city. House against it. You can't do that. Come on, guys. And he says this. If I cast out demons, Matthew puts it this way. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke puts it this way. If I cast out demons by the, remember, the finger of God. The finger of God then the kingdom of God has come to you. And Luke takes that expression from the very lips of the Egyptian sorcerers. The third plague, the plague of gnats, they could not duplicate it. They, they duplicated the Nile turning to blood. They duplicated the frogs. But when it came to the gnats rising up, thousands upon thousands rising up out of the sand, they couldn't, the dust, they, couldn't, they could not duplicate that. Now, I don't know what their trick of the trade was, Remember, though, that they were sorcerers, totally immersed in the occult, so Satan can replicate miracles. Men of lawlessness will do this. However, when they see that they could not duplicate this miracle, this is what they say to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, surely the finger of God is set against us. Now, I thought that was rather humorous only because repeatedly, we're going to look at some verses here, but Moses referred to the hand of God. And it was the insight of the Egyptians says, oh, we don't need the, it's not the hand of God. It, God just needs a finger. That's all he needs to do his work. And I just think that's rather humorous that the Egyptian sorcerers would have that kind of insight. And so that phrase, the finger of God, actually comes from them that Luke uses. Now, the first time that we see this concept of the hand of God is actually at the burning bush. So turn to Exodus chapter 3, because as we learn just very briefly about the hand of God, this is what Luke concludes. The hand of God, the hand of the Lord, was upon this group of people starting this church, and many were coming to Christ, many coming to saving faith, many becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, church. I want the hand of God on my life. I want to know what is this hand? What does it look like? As we start here in, in Exodus chapter 3, it says in verse 19 to 21, it's, Moses is conversing with the Lord at the burning bush. And God is saying to him, but I know that the king of Egypt, the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. So understand this, that God will extend his hand and he will perform many miraculous signs, even judgments against the gods of the Egyptians to the point where Pharaoh will feel compelled and actually order the Israelites out of his land. That is how compelling the hand of God, the judgment of God will be. The miraculous signs and wonders that God will do among the Egyptians, that's how compelling it will be. I find the very next verse rather humorous, ironic, because it doesn't end there. What else will God's hand do? And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. The hand of God will be so heavy upon the Egyptians that the hands of the Israelites will be filled. What irony. The hand of God is on the Egyptians to fill the hands of the Israelites as they leave. That is God's provision. We see God's power. 
receive in his punishment, his judgment on the, on the Egyptians. There are many, actually many verses. I'm not going to read them. I just Let's turn to chapter 7, however. Read one more. And in verses 4 and 5, <coughs> excuse me, Moses and the Lord are talking, and when God is speaking to Moses, starting verse 1, we're going to do that, however, we're going to skip down to verse 4, uh, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's his covenantal name, Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. We see here then God's power, his, prov his providence, his provision, his protection, and even his punishment of God's enemies. Did you catch all of that? His power, his providence, which is really, in this case, incorporates all of these, but it gives a sense of direction. God's in it directing, moving things forward. Our plan now becomes upended as he inserts his plan and moves us in his plan, in his guidance, power, providence, provision, protection, and punishment. And so we actually see God repeatedly telling both Aaron and or Moses, extend your hand. Extend your hand towards the Nile. Extend your hand towards the desert. Extend your hand towards this, that, or the other. Extend your hand towards heaven, and hail came down. And the hand of Moses and the hand of Aaron became a, 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 a symbol that the people could see, and Pharaoh himself could see, the hand of God is against you, Pharaoh. Many times, as now we move into the New Testament, there's so many more references I'm not going to get into, but we get this feel. This is, this is the providential guiding and protection and caring and even judgment or punishment that God extends by his mighty hand. As we move into the New Testament, many of you are familiar in 1 Peter 5 where it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up in due season. He says that right after he quotes from a proverb God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we left Virginia Beach, man, I knew it was so important. I, I could not go by what I wanted. I could not go by what my best plan was because God had already taken that and thrown it away. Though I did seek to formulate a plan as we planted the church, I actually put together a 33-page uh, in the business world, they would call it a business, um, a, a, a business plan. And what are the demographics? And just asking all of those questions. And in church planning, they encourage you to do that. And God said, that, that's pretty cute, Mike. I, I like that. Just come along with me now because I have a totally different plan. And I mean, it was good for me to have thought through this and prayed through it. But I can tell you right now, I have, nowhere to, I have no idea where that 33-page report is. I have no clue. It's buried somewhere in one of my filing cabinets, I'm sure. And God just kind of chuckled and said, Mike, I, I just need you to rely on me. I need you to just simply allow my hand to be upon your church. God is speaking to some of your hearts right now. And he is asking you this question. What are you seeking after? Are you really seeking after my hand? Are you really humbling yourself under my, my mighty hand that I will be the one to lift you up in the right season? That I will heal you in the right season? That I will provide for you in the right season? That I will open doors of opportunity that will amaze you in my time? Are we humbling ourselves under his mighty hand or our plan? As we actually go through the, the New Testament, as specifically now in Acts, we actually encountered this verse last week or the week before. Um, you know, let me first read to you very quickly Luke 
166. Again, Luke has this affinity for using this concept of the Lord's hand. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be referring to little, little tiny baby John the Baptist? For the Lord's hand was with him. This then refers to God's favor, his blessing. As we now turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 28, they had just been persecuted, the, the apostles. They had just been persecuted, or, or excuse me, John and Peter had just been persecuted, came back, and they reported everything. We realize in verse 23, after they'd been released, and they are now praying as a small group. We don't know how many are gathered there. It's more than the apostles, but they're praying. And they say in verse 28, now, Lord, consider their threats. Excuse me, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Verse 28, not 29. They did, that is, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel, crucifying Jesus. They did what your power, the NIV says power here, but the Greek is actually our word care or hand here. What your hand and will had decided beforehand should happen. God's hand decided beforehand. That's an interesting turn of phrase. The NIV doesn't like that too much, so it translates it power. I get it. God's providence. Even in the worst of circumstances, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God had a plan in that. God had a hand in that, if you will. Guiding it. The suffering, the hardship that you're going through, God has a hand in it directing you and you can actually walk in the spirit and not know it as you are seeking God. God, what is it that you're wanting me to do now? And he can lead you and he can actually fill you therefore with joy as you consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And so these Apostles and, and, and others are gathered together and they're recognizing the power of God and his sovereignty as it was his hand was stretched over even the crucifixion of Jesus. And of course, yes, he raised him from the dead. And then it says this in verse 30, stretch, crying out to God, stretch out your what church? Louder for me. Hand, underline that. Stretch out, this is the request. God, stretch out your hand. Can you not, can you only imagine, these are Jews. They knew this concept of the Lord's hand, but in the Exodus and God, how God stretched out his hand, his mighty hand, and he provided for the Israelites and he did powerful signs and wonders and he brought them out of Egypt into his promised land. What was it that God told Moses to stretch out over the Red Sea? Yes, he had the staff, but he told him to stretch out your hand over the Red Sea, and God, by his mighty hand, parted that Red Sea. I want to ask, what conflict, what, what opposition are you facing today? God can wreck that, undo it, part the Red Sea. And he, he, he killed two birds with one stone. Not only did he part the sea, but the enemy on the other side was completely destroyed. Pharaoh and his entire army. History actually tells us that a people by the name of the Hyksos entered into Egypt. And the one writing this, historian, secular historians think that he was being poetic. I assure you he was not. But that the Hyksos, and you can Google that, H-Y-S-K-O-S, H-Y-K-S-O-S, that they entered into Egypt and took the land without a fight. And why, was, why were they able to do this? Because Pharaoh and his army were at the bottom of the Red Sea. And they reigned for a couple hundred years in northern Egypt. But my point, though, is this. God's mighty hand can amaze us. And it is, upon, it is this mighty hand of God that they are appealing to. And it says, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, 
the place where they were meeting was shaken, might I add, by this hand of God, and they were filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the evidence of the hand of God. And so when Luke is writing and he's talking about this and you're kind of just wondering, are they just, are they off on their own plan? Are they just kind of uh, going on a whim? Are they creating their own plan? Are they, are they even walking in the spirit? Or are they being guided by fear, fleeing for their lives like cowards? No, 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 no. Luke says, mm-mm. God's hand was upon them. And people start coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And the Jerusalem church, the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem, they hear about this. And they're amazed, even Gentiles, not just Cornelius' house that we learned about in the first part of chapter 11, last part of chapter 11, now Antioch, Gentiles, non-Jews coming to Christ, why? Not in just a, a few number. And now I think they're reflecting on Jesus' command, and he says, in, in, or, or promise rather, when the Holy Spirit comes in, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And either, you can only imagine the apostles are thinking, guys, it's happening, it's happening to the ends of the earth. God's doing it. Even the Gentiles, they're coming to faith in Christ. All nations will eventually come to this relationship with Jesus Christ and God will change the world. He will fill the world with his glory even as the waters cover the seas. That, and then they were just captivated by the sense and they said, Barnabas, you're one of the guys from Cyprus, right? A bunch of people remember from Cyprus and Cyrene. They were the ones who planted this church, reaching out to Gentiles. Barnabas, you're, you're from Cyprus. How about if you go? You're a mighty man of God. Full, You're a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. You go. You teach them. You know the word. And so Barnabas goes. You know what happens? He gets there, and he rejoices. You know why he rejoices? It was one of that, it was that underlined phrase you saw. He saw something. You know what he saw? It says, he saw, literally translated, he saw God's grace. Don't, don't go over that too lightly. He walks in, he's fellowshipping with the, the Christians, the Gentiles, and he is immediately struck with this, God's grace is here. Can I just ask you, I mean, have you ever seen God's grace? What does it look like? What color is it? What's its shape? That's why the NIV translates it, the evidence of. He saw the evidence of God's grace. Here's, what I'm gonna, here's how I'm going to put it so we can remember better. When God's hand is extended, he leaves behind evidence of his grace and his power. And I'm going to call that evidence his fingerprints. The hand of God leaves fingerprints everywhere it touches, everywhere it lands. In your life, there are fingerprints of God's mighty hand. You will see evidences of God's grace, his mighty hand in your life. When Barnabas saw the, the, came in amongst the church, he saw the fingerprints of the hand of God. He saw evidence of the grace of God. When people come into our church or any church that proclaims Jesus Christ, they must see the grace of God. And so here is my question. What did Barnabas see? Now, Luke refers very much to God's grace in the context of salvation. In the context of salvation. In Acts 4.33 We see the evidence after they are saved. He uses an interesting turn of phrase here. In 430, 432, it, 433, it says with, with great, and that word great is mega, great, you're familiar with, like in that movie, Mega Mind, great, yeah, okay, you follow me. Great or mega power, the apostles, when I was a kid, sorry, that was a cool phrase. Mega. When you want to talk about something, oh, that was like mega cool. Sorry, that was that's an awkward phrase for you. I really. But back in my day, that was a cool phrase. That is mega cool, dude. That's how we spoke. Sorry, I'm, that, you guys are. Wow, Pastor Mike, 
did you guys really talk that way? Mega, mega power, great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much, mega, same word, mega, much grace was upon them there. There, excuse me, upon them all, there were no needy persons among them. God's display of his grace, his immense, his mega grace had so affected and impacted the people that when there was a need, let's, let's figure out how we can meet this need. They were driven by this. Let's, I don't own anything. God has made you a steward of this. You know, how about if you have this? I'll sell some property, lay the money at the apostles' feet, and you, you distribute it as you need, but meet the needs of the people. That was an evidence of God's grace. Turn with me now to chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 43, it says right here as he's, he's talking to those in Pisidian uh, Antioch, he says, when the congregation was dismissed, he's speaking to the Jews, of course, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to do what? To continue in the grace of God. Many of them had just come to a saving, rescuing knowledge of Jesus Christ, saved by his grace. Chapter 14, verse 3. So Paul, they're in Iconium now. Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Now we looked two weeks ago that miraculous signs and wonders never confirmed a person. It doesn't say that anywhere in scripture. It did not confirm the apostles because otherwise Stephen and Philip would be considered apostles and they certainly would not. Miracles confirmed the message. And who is the message about, church? Help, help me out here. Jesus. And that's why Jesus is the only one that was accredited by God by signs and wonders. Because when he did miracles, it confirmed what he was talking about, which was about himself, Jesus. We speak the message. God does signs and wonders to confirm the message about Jesus. That is the message of grace. Grace, the fact that me, one who is totally lost in my sin, totally consumed in his self and selfishness, my heart was desperately wicked beyond cure. I couldn't understand it. That heart, God changed by his grace. The cross, the cross, it, it, it did not just set me an example as the liberals, theologians today want to convince us of it. It did not just simply say, hey, you want to overcome sin? This is how they view it. Jesus died on the cross. He didn't die as a ransom. He didn't, nothing really happened there on the cross. It didn't affect anything. It was just an example. Hey, do you, do you want to be saved from your sin? Do what Jesus did. Sacrifice yourself for people. And so Jesus is simply this, hey, come follow me and do what I do, and that way I'll save you from our sin. Can I assure you that the cross actually did something? It affected my salvation. It brought it about. It made it possible. There's power in the cross. It did something. Jesus paid for my sin. I heard this guy, Stephen Chalk from England. He's a, he's a liberal that, you know, praises around as an evangelical. You may have heard about him, uh, but Stephen Chalk, and, and he says this, he says, for us to even consider that Jesus was punished for my sins, that the father punished his sin, his son for my sins, he works it with it, he says, that's cosmic child abuse. Oh, doesn't that just stir something up in your heart? Excuse me for my sarcasm. I mean, and this is what he tries to do, and there are men who want to rob the cross of its power and want to just downplay it. It's just simply hey, sacrifice and you won't sin, okay? Sacrifice instead of sinning, okay? Let's sacrifice people and that way we won't sin. But I want to tell you something. I was lost and a slave to my sin and I couldn't make that transition. I couldn't just stop being selfish and start serving and loving God and stop sinning. I couldn't do it. I was a slave. I was addicted to my sin. And so the cross broke that power. That is the message of God's grace. And so I just want you to know that when we're talking about grace, when Paul, excuse me, when Barnabas comes in and he sees the fingerprints of God's hand and he sees this thing called God's grace, it was something, listen to this church, 
it was something that man cannot and never will be able to explain. Let me just give you an example. Can I do that? You're familiar with the Greek word charismata, that spiritual gift. But you, some of you may know that it's rooted in the word charis, which is the word grace. So some, tr- some translators actually translate spiritual gift graceless. In other words, they are gifts of grace to God's people to minister to one another. So it's rooted in this word grace. Spiritual gifts are a manifestation, therefore, 1 Corinthians 12, of the Holy Spirit, of God's grace. So here's where I'm going with this. You're aware that some people are just excellent teachers. They're really good teachers. They have a talent. They have a skill. God blessed them, and somehow they just got it. Teaching just came naturally to them. And, and, and I just I wished many times that that would have been me. When I was in high school, I remember trying to tell a story, and I took a one-minute story and shortened it to five minutes. That's just what I did, to the point where my dad would regularly say, Michael, just, just get to the point. So some of you are thinking right now, Pastor Mike, just get to your point. I'll do that in a minute. And so here, and, and I, just, I, just, I, know I just did not have that. My dad was a great teacher, though. He, he was a 12th grade English teacher. He loved teaching, gave a lot, sacrificed for teens, loved teens, etc. There's some people who just really have a talent and a skill for teaching. But that is not the spiritual gift of teaching. And so my question to you is, how do you recognize the difference? Some people, they, they're just excellent teachers. They're funny. They, they're creative in what they do. And, and I'm all for growing in, in a, an ability to teach. But that is different than the spiritual gift of teaching. And so my question to you before I feed you what I think the answer is, what do you think the answer is? When you hear someone gifted in teaching, how do you know that that's different than the spiritual gift of teaching? And here's all I know. When you hear someone teaching with the gift of teaching, the Spirit of God imparts truth to you. The Spirit of God opens our eyes and our understanding. We step back and say, And it's not just that I understand it, but there's this yearning because the Spirit of God is moving through that teaching gift and ministering to your heart. And there's something in you that says, that's who I want to be like. That's what I want to do. And there's this yearning and hunger, and it stirs something up in us. Why? Because it's the Spirit of God, not the words of man, that is moving you. And so I tell you what. I want to live my life. Hear me, church. Let this be your cry too. I just want to live my life in such a way that no man can explain it. I can't explain it. It's not because Mike Curtis is some great guy. I'm sorry, I laugh at that. I truly do. But because Mike Curtis just happens to have found this God that by his grace does amazing things. And anyone who surrenders and lives by faith, Stephen, a man full of the Spirit and faith, Barnabas, a good man full of the Spirit and faith, that's what I want to be like. God, you don't have to give me the you don't have to give me this natural ability to lead. You don't have to give me the natural ability to speak in front of people. I'll ruin it. But God, if you can just speak through me, that's all that I care. When God gets a hold of a Moses whose tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth and leads a two million people out of captivity and does signs and wonders by the mighty hand of God and people are brought into relationship with God, that's who I want to be like. That that there be something in us that longs for this grace of God that cannot be explained by description of man for man to be, I can figure you, I know why people respond to your gospel message because of this, that, or the other. No, they're not going to be able to do that. When people look at you and they see, man, you just love so, I bet you it's because you're such an outgoing person. I bet you it's because you, you learned in a book how to, or you had parents that just taught you right. Many of you, you sit here and God loves through you supernaturally. 
It's natural for you to love supernaturally. And you know what? You have no explanation for it. You grew up in a broken home. Your parents were a mess. And you too were a mess. But God, by his grace, decided to extend his mighty hand and leave his fingerprints all over you and change your life by the grace, by the message of grace that just upended you and changed you and infused you with his spirit to be able to live supernaturally for him. So when Barnabas comes into the church at Antioch, he sees people like you and he says, wow, that is not explainable. That, because remember, he was from Cyprus. He may have even known many of those from Cyprus. I know you, buddy. And what I'm seeing right now, that's not you. That's not the old Joe that I knew. Okay, Joe, that's a Jewish name, Joe and Joseph. Okay, well, you're all right. And there's no way that you, but God has done something in your life. He saw God's grace. I'm just going to tell you, when you walk in God's spirit, times in which you don't even know it, and you are just seeking after God, that is all you're doing. God, just lead me. Seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness, all this other stuff that's going to take care of itself. They'll be added unto you, Matthew 6.33 promises you. And when that happens, and you live like Stephen and Barnabas that we're learning about this morning, God's hand is going to be all over you. That's going to lead you. The people from Cyprus and Cyrene, God's hand was on them, guiding them, protecting them, providing for them powerfully. And they left God left his fingerprints all over that place. God's grace. And I'm just going to close with this, and I'm already over time. Many of you have done studies in John 15. You, you love John 15, the whole concept of abiding in Christ. NIV doesn't use translate it that way. It says remaining. Fair enough way to translate this Greek word. The Greek word is meno. And we, we translate it, and King James translates it abiding. And it's because it gives us this concept of dwelling with, not just staying. Not just staying, but abiding, sinking roots deeply into Jesus, the vine. John 15. We come across this word, and I'm just going to conclude with this because I'm going to give you a charge. Just as Barnabas gave the people in Antioch a charge, and that charge was this to remain true to the Lord. That word, to remain true to, is this word, prosmeno. This concept, this preposition pros, meaning to do so in, an, in a more emphatic way. To remain true, to sink your roots deep into, to, to have this intimacy with Jesus. How did he... Excuse me, how did he respond to the grace of God? Guys, get plugged into Jesus. Stay rooted in him. Sink your roots into Jesus. Never let go of him. Trust me, he will not let go of you. Pursue him. Build this intimacy with Jesus. Seek him. Seek him first in your life. Be satisfied only in him. Don't let the world, don't seek after the things of the world and be satisfied in those things. Just like the woman at the well, it's you know, this, this, this living water, it's not something that's going to satisfy your temporary thirst. But it's, it's spiritual, it's powerful. It, 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 here's, the thing about, here's the thing about living water. It might satisfy your thirst, but doesn't it just make you more and more thirsty for Jesus? And that's what, that's what he's telling you, you know, seek him. Hunger for him. He will fill you and he will make you even more hungry for him. Remain true to him. Stay connected, intimately connected with him. Intimately connected with this grace. Can you hear this, church? I believe that God's desire for every church, including Paraline, that proclaims the name of Jesus, when unbelievers or anyone, anyone would come into where they meet, that they would see the fingerprints of the hand of God. They would look about and say, this is not explainable by any measure of the imagination of man. This is God.
Will you stand with me? Can your life be explained in human terms? I think too often mine can. And I get wearied by that. I want to live a life that people would say, yeah, that's not Mike Curtis. That's got to be God. And so I want to ask you, how much do you want God's hand in your life? When Socrates was approached by a young man saying, I I want wisdom, Socrates said, well, how much do you want wisdom? I I want it with everything in me. He took him to the ocean, and he said, I'm going to give you wisdom. And he he submerged his head under the water. The young man tried to come up, and and eventually got up out of the water, gasping for breath. Socrates said, how much do you want wisdom? I want it with everything that I, that I, that's in me. And he put him under the water again. He did this three times. And the last time the young man sputtered and sputtered and struggled to come up out of the water as Socrates kept him under. And when he finally emerged, gasping for breath, he was about to drown. Socrates said, and how much do you want wisdom with everything in me? He says, even as you wanted that gasp of air, that's how much you need to want wisdom. And I want to charge you, church, do you want God's grace? Want it like with your dying breath, your last breath, gasping, Jesus, I need you. God, that is our heart's cry. Don't don't allow my life to be explained in human terms. I want your grace. I want you to live through me, God, in such a way that people would look on and they would see, God, they would see your grace. Father, please, you do in me whatever you choose. You do in us whatever you choose. I commend these good people to you, God. Work in us, every one of us, your will. Change our plans if you need to, but may your hand rest heavily upon us that the world would look on and they would say, surely God is among you. That is my prayer. Would you help us, Lord, to walk in your spirit in this way? Your grace, in Jesus' name.